We read about the martyrs for Christ in Revelation 6, verses 9 to 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them, that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. Welcome to Souls Under the Altar, a program that reviews the stories of God's persecuted from the past and the present. Your host for this program is Etienne McClintock. Dear listener, greetings and a warm welcome. Thank you for joining us on the program again today. My special guest in the studio is Dr. Barry Harker. Now, he's written a couple of books, and he's not a stranger to 3ABN Australia Radio. You are the person that started off this ministry about five years ago now. I think yeah, 2014 and 15. Right, okay. So you're, uh, you've left 3ABN Australia Radio, and you've written a couple of books, and you're working on a third one. The first book you wrote, uh, which is uh, It's Sunday in America. And that deals with prophecy and how we interpret some of the things that are happening around the world in the light of what the Bible says that's going yes. to happen in the future. Yes. Now, if you read that book in itself, um, you can think, oh, we're in for a very tough time. And that, of course, is the truth. But you've written a second book, which is a follow-up on it. It's what, what God is like. Now, that, of course, will give people a lot of encouragement to know that ultimately God is the one that wins the war, the battle between good and evil. And also those who are connected to God ultimately will be able to celebrate that victory with Christ as well when he comes. Yeah, that's it. And I have another book that I'm working on in 2019, which is uh, essentially an apology for Christianity and biblical authority. So there's a trilogy of books. Okay. Great. Well, the program today is called The Two Revolutions, and I'm fascinated to to hear what that's about. We did talk a little bit in our previous program about equality and liberty, and then also liberty and equality, and which one dominates which. Mm-hmm. And we know that in the, in the U.S., they've had liberty as the most important aspect of those two, and equality was a subservient to liberty. Yes. Now, uh, what are the two revolutions we are discussing today? Well, we're going to discuss the American Revolution, and we're going to discuss the French Revolution. Okay. And we're going to see the reason why we have a stress on the American democracy is because the French model is pushing at the American model. So to understand what's going on in our modern world, we have to go back a little bit to the 18th century, find out the ideas that led to the... American Revolution and the ideas that led to the French Revolution and seeing how they're different and why when one model pushes at the other model, there's always going to be a stress on the democratic institutions of that society, which is what we're seeing in the United States. Well, I'm I'm looking forward to you unpacking that for us. Okay. So we have, as we mentioned in the first program, we have the philosopher John Locke, um, Edmund Burke in the, the 18th century, the late 18th century. And then philosophers like Bentham and Mill in the 19th century, these are the great progenitors of liberal democracy. Mm. And as we mentioned, liberal democracy usually has parliamentary rule, rule of law, majority majority rights, but protections for individuals and for, for minority groups. And you also have things like right to assemble peaceably, to seek redress, to... Um, to speak your mind, freedom of speech, mm. freedom of association, 
uh, freedom from arbitrary arrest and all those sorts of things. Right. So that's a liberal democracy. That's the American model. Mm. The French model is a little different. The French model really depends... And by the way, these ideas were flowing across Europe and the United States, so it's not as if it's exactly one or the other. Yes. Um, but the French chose a model... And, and I should say that the Americans really chose their model of liberty above equality. They were interested in equality too. Mm. But at the time their constitution was written, a slave was only worth two-thirds of a free, of a free person for um, census purposes. Mm. So if you look at their situation, they were more interested in keeping the freedoms that they had found through um, divesting themselves of British influence and control they were interested in keeping those freedoms. They wanted an equal society as well, but it wasn't as important as individual freedom. And that's mm. why there's a tremendous influence on individualism in the United States. Gun rights and all those sorts of things right. fit into that, into that picture. And so when you put uh, liberty above equality, you're bound in the American situation to have problems with slavery because they had slavery okay. at that time. It took them decades, right down to the 1860s, mm. to resolve the issue with the American Civil War. But then another 100 years after that to the 1960s. So even though they had um, federal legislation, a lot of it wasn't operationalized at the state level. And so it took to the 1960s to have the great civil rights movement to actually finally achieve the promise of the Civil War outcome 100 years before. And they, even today, they still have an issue with racism. Mm. like all Western societies, particularly yes. those where you've, um, you've had some sort of colonial past. So that's one model. Now we're going to talk about the second model. The okay. French model really was based upon the ideas of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He was probably the most influential political and educational philosopher of the modern era. And uh, he developed the concept of the cult of nature, that is... In contrast with the biblical model, which says that human nature is corrupted, it's corrupted by it's corrupted at birth. Hmm. He said, "No, man is basically good. Humanity is basically good." And so he wanted to develop a conception of society based on a radical change in the understanding of human nature. And so he developed the cult of nature. He thought that primitive, so-called primitive societies were more virtuous than more developed societies. And so this whole idea of a return to nature, the cult of nature, became really important to him. Um, things like um, walking in nature. You know, he wrote a book called Reveries of a Solitary Walker, which sort of indicates his philosophy in action. Yes. He also said that reason... By the way, the, the Enlightenment is flowing at this time. It's in full flight. Mm. We're talking about um, after 1750. The Enlightenment in France is in full flight. So the idea that reason was the cure for all the ills of society, that you had to get rid of tradition and you had to get rid of religion to make the society function well, he said, no, reason has uh, severe limitations to actually improve the human condition. And so this ultimately became the birth of the Romantic movement. So it wasn't so much about thinking, it was about feeling and responding and emotion. These are the things that make our lives. Wow. And of course, as soon as you start talking about f freedom 
and, and emotionalism and so forth, you begin to talk about individual identity. So this is where the whole concept of identity and the importance of equality comes from. So, so is, could, is that one of the reasons we see nowadays with that influence that's growing in the West that there is not so much opportunity to have a discussion and, and reason things out because it's it's not so much about reason anymore. It's more about emotionalism. Emotionalism, and, yes. Yes, okay. and, and we'll, we'll trace that through sure. as we come down to it. So he really said that society is the source of social corruption and he particularly targeted private property as a source of social crime. Well, that idea was taken up by Marx, for example. The idea that that um, private property was corrupting. So when the Russian Revolution took place, for example, one of the things they did was to destroy private property and collectivise. And of course, it didn't have a very good outcome. It never has had a good outcome. And you can look at societies as uh, like Russia. You can look at China. You can look at um, Pol Pot in Cambodia in the nineteen in the nineteen seventies, uh, Castro's Cuba, and so forth. Wherever there's been collectivisation. And a radical flattening, uh, rejection of tradition, rejection of religion, radical flattening, utopianism, building a new society based on the perfectibility of human nature, then you have some pretty negative outcomes because Mm. people were willing then to, in their pursuit of equality, they were willing to do some pretty heinous things. And so... When you have a look at Rousseau's ideas, they not only influenced the modern, the, the Russian, uh, sorry, the uh, French and Russian revolutions, but they have internationalized today. Mm. And so you have two different models. And in this model, equality is more important than liberty. And you can see that in the French Revolution. Mm. The French Revolution radically flattened society. They, uh, they simply took most of the church property. Um, they they sent the priests out of the country on pain of death, and the idea was that they would take the property of the church, the Catholic Church at the time, and they would use that to fund the development of this new society, and uh, and so there was a radical flattening. Tradition went, uh, religion went. There were efforts to try. It was in essence the first officially atheistic regime in the modern in the modern era. Right. And so as a consequence, they placed equality as being more important than liberty. So when you get to the the terror, this is the period during 1793 for about 12, 13 months, Mm. from mid-1793 to 1794, you had the terror where you had the Committee of Public Safety saying, well, we have to, anyone who's not on board, anyone who's a traitor to this new system has to be dealt with. And so thousands of people lost their heads. Um, with the guillotine, wow. and hundreds of thousands died in other places, mm. and so this was a, a tremendous uprooting of uh, of history, and the whole idea was that equality must be seen as greater than liberty. So they were willing to deny people their rights and their liberties to establish equality across the board. So here you have two models, the two revolutions, the American model. uh, liberty above equality and the French model uh, equality above liberty so whenever those two clash uh, for example if uh, the French model comes into America for example Mm. 
then what are you going to see? Well, you're going to see equality becomes more important. So take a look at the, the perennial issue in the United States, racism. Right. So they say, okay, we have to get rid of the racism. Mm. What's, what's driving the racism? Well, it's our traditions. It's our religious traditions. It's our cultural traditions. It's our social institutions and so forth. We radically have to change those. And so when that happens, you're going to have a stress that you see on the democracy itself. And are we seeing a stress in the United States? We're definitely seeing yes, a stress. Yes, we are. Yeah. We're seeing it here in Australia. Mm. We're seeing it across the Western English-speaking um, world and also the non-English-speaking world. Mm. So this is um, basically the source of the stress that Yasha Mount talked about in relationship to democracy, the whole identity issue. By the way, identity then means women and it means gender particularly. Mm. So, and to have true equality in the system, you have to have your identity approved and celebrated by the society. Now, you can't afford to have, to dis, to have dissent in the, around those issues because unless it's 100% acceptance, it's not true equality. So that's why you're seeing some fairly authoritarian things take place in our culture mm. where people are denying the rights of other people to have a say. Some ideas become so beyond the pale that people reject your right to even say them. And so the whole idea is to ensure that everyone's identity is given approval. And when it's given approval, if you still have dissenters in our society, then they have to be quiet. That's what you have to insist on. And so that means that you're going to force them out of the public domain. You're going to force their ideas out of the public domain. But unfortunately, as we have seen, not only in the United States, but also here in Australia, we have an alternative right developing in reaction to this. Hmm. Whenever you do this, you can't expect a non-reaction. You will get a reaction from the culture. And that's what's happening. And that's where the divisions are coming in the United States. And that's where they're coming here in Australia. So remember that when you see identity politics being played, it's all about equality. But the issues are so huge for people that they see that they have to have 100% approval and celebration of their identity before they can achieve true equality in society. So that's the French model operating. So whenever it comes in conflict with um, the, the liberal tradition, the liberal democratic tradition, it's going to place stress on that society. Mm. So uh, we, we, we're seeing a, an idealism in that French uh, revolution principle that's now coming into the world. It's uh, idealistic in the sense that it has an ideal in mind about mm. what it wants to create. A, a utopian but it's all society. Yeah, utopian, but it's, yeah. also, it's also a radical ideology at the same time. Okay. You can have a more moderate idealism. You can have a, you can have a, a liberal democratic idealism. Or you can have an idealism which is based on um, radical equality, developing a new society completely, especially where uh, it, there has to be equality of outcome. So everyone has to be given due access to the resources of society. Mm. And you've got to admit that in the Western society there's a lot of people, a lot of very rich people, who are doing quite well, thank you very much, mm. from their current society, but there are a lot of people who are not winning, they're on the losing end of the picture, and that will always create stress. So... I guess what society has to do is to find a point 
where both people's identity is accommodated but at the same time the, the environment the, and the culture isn't placed under so much stress that it divides to the point where you're getting these radical reactions on both ends of the political spectrum. Mm, because it's very clear as I'm listening to you that there are two different worldviews there that are coming in conflict with one another. And the it seems like the, the, the one that is born out of the French Revolution is less tolerant to the one on the other side. Is that correct to say that? Or would you say that that's not exactly the case? No, I'd say that is correct. Mm. Because if you look at... Um, Rousseau's ideas as they were operationalized in the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution used the French Revolution as a model. They, the reason why the, the Russian Revolution happened uh, when it did was because Lenin felt that it was time to move to the revolution. But basically the, the Marxists of the time felt that they had to go through the theoretical construct that Marx had developed where he said you can't have a true socialist society until it's been through its capitalist phase. Oh, okay. And so because it hadn't had the capitalist phase, some of the Bolsheviks in Russia, for example, were saying, well, no, we have to wait until Russia goes through its capitalist phase and then we can have the true, a true revolution, mm. true Marxist revolution. Uh, the fact that it happened early. But if you look at the history of the Russian Revolution, uh, it was pretty ugly, mm. actually, particularly when um, Stalin came in. You wouldn't exactly call Lenin a, a Democrat, but uh, under, by no stretch of the imagination could you ever say that Stalin was one. And he was brutal. Hmm. Uh, the Ukrainian uh, famine in the early 1930s, 1932, 33, the Great Terror, you know, you had the terror in the French Revolution, yes. but you had the Great Terror. So around 1937, well, actually 36 to 38, but particularly in 37 and 38, you had what is called the Great Terror, something like a million plus extrajudicial executions in Russia. Wow. This is only 80 years ago. Yeah, this, mm. is just, this is just prior to the war. By the way, it gave Stalin a headache because when, the, when Hitler finally turned on him, he had virtually decapitated his military capacity, all wow. of his generals and so forth. Mm. And so um, it wasn't a very wise thing to do. But the reason he did it was because he could see that he had placed his culture under so much stress that there was a chance that he would be removed. And so what he did is he went after his enemies. So this, and then you have um, the eastern satellites after the Second World War where the communist regimes were imposed upon Eastern Europe. Then you have the Cuban Revolution in the late 1950s. Hmm. Same principles, all going back to Rousseau's ideas, ideas that prevailed during the French Revolution. Mao Zedong, that, in China, that was a horrible thing. During 1958 to 1962, it's called the Great Leap Forward. Yeah. Most historians estimate conservatively that there are about 45 million extrajudicial deaths during that time. Mm. A lot of people shot, bludgeoned to death, displaced, whatever, anyone who resisted. And so um, to come down to the 1970s, not so long ago actually, with Pol Pot, 1975 to 1979, again they think about a million plus extrajudicial executions in Cambodia. Oh. Why? To create this new society, this new classless society. Hmm. So if you look at the history of these ideas, um, they don't inspire you with confidence. No. I definitely prefer the, uh, the U.S. model, that's for sure. Indeed. Yeah. And, and of course, it had, it, it had its issues, and it's had to wrestle with those issues ever since. But by placing liberty above equality, 
essentially it um, it gave people the opportunity to flourish in their society, at least the majority to flourish. And uh, it was necessary for them also to look at what they were doing to their minorities, and they've tried to deal they've tried to deal with that. But you're talking about human beings. You're never going to fully eradicate racism out of our cultures. Mm. Any efforts to do so are going to be only partially successful. As an ideal, absolutely correct. But we've got to be really careful about how we address those issues. And this comes back to that uh, worldview where people believe that human beings are inherently good. It's just they've been corrupted by man-made institutions. Yes. Where we as Christians assume that man inherently is wicked and he'll do the wrong thing given the opportunity by nature. So therefore, there's got to be protections in place, put in place by law to protect society from that, uh, from that inclination. Now, this, this brings up the whole issue of virtue. Mm. For example, in the American system, with their tradition, their religious traditions, virtue is based on a biblical model, that goodness is virtue. Right. Whereas if you look at Rousseau, he thought he, he himself was virtuous. Mm. Although if you look at his life, he was far from virtuous in a, in a, in a biblical sense. Right. Um, the man didn't marry the lady who bore five children to him, all of whom he abandoned to foundling hospitals mm. um, because he thought that would be less convenient, uh, more convenient for him. But uh, infringe on his liberties. Would infringe on his liberties or whatever. <laughs> and so, but Rousseau's ideas have been immensely influential in the modern era. And so if we look at this issue of virtue and compassion, a good example would be the issue of um, Bill Clinton in the late 1990s hmm. when he was having his, um, his woes, his political woes in yes. his second term. Uh, there was a, an amazing article put out called Moist Eyes from Rousseau to Clinton. Hmm. This was published in the late 1990s by a political scientist. And essentially what he was saying was that Rousseau's conception of virtue is different, uh, was so different, but that the tradition of, of Rousseau's conception of virtue came right down to Clinton's time. So even though Clinton wasn't morally virtuous, hmm. but he was considered compassionate. So he had compassion for people. So that was, that was okay. And so this whole concept, if you were compassionate and you had and you're looking out for the rights of other individuals mm. then your peccadilloes could be put to one side you know your um, your sins against morality could be forgotten you know, okay or, or wiped out so what we have today is the same can the same disjunction between virtue and compassion so you can have people who are looking out for the rights of individuals but they do it in a very unvirtuous way you know they transgress the rights of people to be heard for their ideas to be heard and so forth, become quite authoritarian, use underhanded tactics and so forth to get their to get their point across. So when you're looking at this whole situation of virtue and compassion, you've got two different conceptions of virtue and compassion as well. Mm. One based on the biblical model, the other one based on Rousseau's model. Okay. So which one is growing in influence at the moment? Rousseau's model. Rousseau's model. So could we be confronted with similar scenes? I mean, we're already starting to see, I guess, warning signs of that, but could we be confronted with similar scenes to what we saw during the French Revolution? 
Could or, that be lying on the horizon for us? Well, that's what Revelation 13 and 14 is about, isn't it? Mm. So, yes, it could be. And, in fact, if you look at um, these ideas, they're, they're, they're rampant, they're utopian, they're um, essentially um, they're, they're very undemocratic in the mm. sense that it doesn't sort of hold um, other people's rights as being sacrosanct like we've had in the past. So loss of civility? Loss of, yeah, loss of civility. Although that's not a new thing. Hmm. That loss of civility has always been, always been with us. Hmm. But at key times, you see what's happening in the French Revolution break out into a modern world. Well, what you see, the terrible things that you saw on a national level, you can expect to happen at an international level if these, hmm. if these ideas prevail. So it's essentially two different worldviews two different models, two different conceptions of human nature working their way out in our modern politics. Wow, that's incredible. So we, we, we're talking about uh, a question of equality and a question of identity, a question of liberty, and then also there's a decline, I guess, like you say, it's not new, but a client, decline of civility in the way we interact with one another and respect people's um, what we give inalienable rights, and there's an erosion of that. So Revelation 13 paints a picture, but it's a religious picture that we see. And typically the principles that come out of the French Revolution are more atheistic or secular in nature. Can we start looking at bringing those two together and what you think might happen in the future, in a, in a future program? Well, I think that equality is not a bad idea. Hmm. I think all of us would be in favour of equality of opportunity, and any liberal democracy worth sure, its name would ensure that its, that its uh, citizens have equal access to opportunities, mm. whether government jobs or educational opportunities and so forth. Mm. No one's arguing against that. Yeah. But if you start to impose a conception where equality of outcomes becomes important, then you're going to have to become very undemocratic to force society into that mould. And that's where the problems come for religious liberty. So perhaps we, we can go into this in a little more detail in the next program. Okay. So dear listener, I've been talking to Dr. Barry Harker, who is an author. He's written a couple of books, one called It's Sunday in America, which looks at uh, the prophetic understanding of what we see in the world around us at the moment. And then the second book, which is an encouragement for us not to lose heart as we looked at the God of the Bible, Jesus, our creator, our redeemer and sustainer, who's able to keep us and to take us through this whole trial that is coming on the world. We know that there will be a great tribulation, such as never was since there was a nation. And the second book is called What God is Like. Now, these books are available here at 3ABN. You can uh, go on our website and you can also give us a call if you'd like to uh, get access to these. And these books are also available um, on the internet and you can even buy them through Kindle, for example, or Amazon if you would like to access them. So I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Barry Harker, for joining me today in the studio and we look forward to unpacking these concepts we've been talking about in this program about the two revolutions a little bit further in the next program until next time god bless
Thank you for joining us on Souls Under the Altar. If you'd like more information about today's program or if you have any questions, please contact 3ABN Australia Radio by phoning 0249733456 or you can send an email to radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. You can also contact us on our 3ABN Australia Radio Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you.